This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast. Dot or not. The law enforcement officer. Dot or not. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge, and welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on-duty and off-duty law enforcement officers to give you all the angles of discussion. Today, I'm joined by Hanny McMood again. Today, we're going to talk about dots and dots for cops being the uh, micro red dot optics, MRDS, uh, for, for your duty gun, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And the reason I'm having Hanny on today is because you know, last week we had Riley and, uh, you know, he's doing excellent in competition with uh, carry optics. And we're going to talk the the law enforcement side because Hanny trains and certifies firearms instructors and law enforcement officers to carry an optic mounted pistol. Before we kick it off with Hanny, this episode is going to be brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Mountain Man is focused on two core principles. First, build med kits and trauma kits that consist of name brand and proven tested components. Second, they make them the most affordable of any company on the market. Check out the full lineup of products and kits at mountainmanmedical.com. Remember, LEOs, firearms instructors, and other professionals, you can save up to 15%. Carry a tourniquet, guys. If there's one piece of information and one piece of advice that I could give you after being in the military and law enforcement, that is carry a flipping tourniquet and get one through Mountain Man Medical. Honorary sponsor today, of course, is EDC Belt Company. Those of you may or may not know, I am the co-founder, co-designer of the Foundation Belt, available at concealedcarry.com. It is absolutely the most comfortable and functional carry belt on the market. Well-constructed, and it's priced at under $50. Infinitely adjustable, low-profile tri-glide buckle. It's hard to beat. Let's bring in our guest, Hanny. Yes, sir. All right, welcome back for yet another week of rabbit hole exploration we'll do the best we can uh, we have done well at it thus far before we dive off into what i have kind of comically dubbed dot or not uh, not to be confused with the uh <laughs> you remember the old website uh <laughs> anyway uh, we got a little mailbag this week and i wanted to go over a couple of them yeah so keith sends us Interesting discussion, and this was on weapon-mounted lights, the one we did with uh, Steve uh-huh. Moses and uh, Jacob Paulson. And you and I, we kind of had to scrap that one. We had some audio problems. So we had, we've got one floating around there in cyberspace that never came to fruition. But uh, Keith says, interesting discussion, and thank you all. Well, thank you, Keith. One potential feature for non-police use, which was missed, is the strobe function on some lights. I am a retired police officer, but have a light-equipped pistol, which turns on the strobe when drawn from the holster. Perhaps wishful thinking, but maybe when an assailant gets, quote, strobed, he would, as a reflex, turn away and maybe make a quick decision to disengage. Maybe. Thoughts appreciated. Hanny, be gentle. Well, generally am. Um, I think that the function has a lot of merit, and I know guys that really like it. I've never really seen anybody uh, use it or teach with it in training. 
in terms of outdoor setting. Generally, people see it as like an advantage when you're going into rooms and things like that. The reason why I say that is it really doesn't have anything, you know, your eyes have nothing to do with inside or outside. But I think it's a matter of proximity because when you're in inside a structure, they could be very close or they could be, you know, at the opposite end of a room or they could be in lots of different places. When you're walking out and about with people, generally the attack tends to be very, very close. And they usually, you know, have a bead on you and know what you look like. And you're not just the light that comes out of nowhere when you're using it in a structure. Right. So I, I don't know if it would give you the same kind of advantage as outdoors, uh, like walking across the supermarket parking lot when the guy's already eyed you and, and sized you up and decided to do something. But that's an interesting question. And it's one I've never seen taught. Well, I think, uh, I have used them in both training and, mm -hmm. uh, accidentally to be honest with you because i didn't understand the whole 10 tap feature on my first streamlight sure. tlr1s and i didn't understand this the s stood for strobe the only thing that i took away from his comment here we appreciate the feedback keith uh is the light equipped pistol which turns on the strobe when drawn from the holster i don't recommend that i have seen those holsters I'm not a big fan of when I have to draw my holster my or draw my gun from the holster. The, the light automatically comes on. I will tell you uh, the first time I deployed with a strobe accidentally because I was using the momentary switch as I'm searching a structure and I came upon a bad guy in said structure. The strobe kind of makes it look like you're getting ready to go go boogie in a in a haunted house or something i didn't really find that it did anything other than make my visual orientation just as bad as it did the suspects and i double tapped it and went solid light i'm standing yeah. behind four or five hundred lumens of light and <laughs> let's go let's get business done right so anyway thanks for your comment keith uh let's see the next one mark says nice info Socially unacceptable is another way of saying the same thing as socially unpalatable. So I think he was, uh, <laughs> he was referring to, I've been using the word socially unpalatable, that little phrase for a little while. He commented on that in reference to the things that gun owners do that LEOs don't, don't appreciate. Uh, well, and, you know, uh, we use the pros that we use. So, well, and, and I can go into that. Uh, just a bit. I'll, I'll touch on it for Mark here. Socially unacceptable means it is not okay, right? Socially unpalatable means it might be okay to do it, but people are generally going to reject it. And and what I you know what I'm saying? So it's like a little bit less than completely socially un, unacceptable. People are just going to look 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 bad at it, right? That's kind of my my take. This is from Rick. I felt like you guys went way too long on the open carry issue. We get it. When I listen to these podcasts, I don't have a lot of time to sit around and listen to old stories. I think a lot of your listeners would like it if you got to other points quicker. It's It was very interesting. Thank you, Rick. To hear the three things you don't want to do to upset LEOs. I'm a new gun owner with my concealed carry license here in Minnesota. Thank you, Rick, for being a responsible citizen and carrying a gun. I'm trying to learn about Indeed. The, kudos to him. Yes. I I'm trying to learn about the do's and don'ts of many topics. Please in the future, try to get to each point, maybe a bit quicker. And that would give some perspective to the point making. Thanks for your time. Well, Rick, I appreciate the constructive criticism 
Hanny and I being cops, we're not easily offended by much. And sometimes we do tend to dive off in the rabbit hole. And that just goes from, I think you and I are at about 52 years of combined law enforcement experience at this point. So (laughs) (laughs) it's certainly, it's certainly well into the forties. Yeah. If not in the fifties, it's well into the forties. And, and, uh, for two guys as young and handsome as us, we have a lot of (laughs) stories to tell from a lot of experience. So thank, thanks, Rick. We will try to Uh, get to the point quicker. And our last one from Angela says, I'd love to be able to listen to listen on Podbean. Angela, do me a favor concealedcarry.com they are carrying this podcast and they are they are the promoter of it if you want to hear it on podbean well now that i've read it out loud we'll uh we'll talk to the we'll have our people talk to their people and see if we can't make that happen thanks again for everybody that wrote in if you get on the website there is a contact form on there it's i won't say a contact form it's it's a comment you can go into an episode you've listened to and leave comments. You can do the same on iTunes and, and all the other podcast platforms. So hit subscribe, leave us a good review. Now that I've gotten all that out to dot or all, not, or all not. pretty good. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm working on my shtick, man. Like I'm trying to be somewhere between Howard Stern and David Lee Roth. Well, the best I can do is probably, probably be Michael Anthony, I guess. <laughs> Stand there and look happy with a bass <laughs> exactly. guitar. Hey, you know what? Little musician humor. You know what you, you know what you throw to a drowning bass player. His what? his amplifier. <laughs> I'm sorry. For those oh, of you that play bass, we love you. You're the guitar players. Oh man, you know I've got one more, and then we'll dive off into dot or not. Do you know what they call the guy that hangs around with a bunch of musicians? The that, dr- that would be the bass player, I assume. No, no, no the drummer. <laughs> Thanks, and any of you all that are musicians that tune into the show, I sincerely that's that's almost like the the cop humor version of musician humor. It's nothing personal. God bless you, and, bass and I, players and drummers. And I and I respect them all because I, I I can't play anything. I can't play anything. Well, this year at TACCON, I'll bring a couple of guitars and I'll at least show you a G chord. So, oh, okay, <laughs> perfect. Um, so the the reason, like I said in the intro that I got you on board today is mm-hmm. you spend what I would call a fair amount of time training and certifying police officers and firearms instructors on how to not only run a gun with a dot, but how to teach people to teach people a dot, right? So last, yeah. last week, uh, last week's episode, we had Riley Bowman, and uh, I mentioned this earlier, he is slapping cheek and leaving a mark in the carry optics uh yeah i saw yeah i I saw a clip of him and i believe he's running a 320 isn't he yes a 320 that's that's all gray guns yeah gray guns definitely uh and and he was doing some impressive shooting yeah to say the least uh yeah and uh i don't know if you you saw the the video of the bill drill that he did but i was the one yep yeah, I was thinking, you know, on my best day with my best tuned gun, I would be hard pressed to pull the trigger that fast and do it with a measure of accuracy. I, I know that I, if I remember correctly, I think he was in the one sevens, wasn't he? Yeah, it was like one seventy eight or something like yeah, that. Something like that. 
And, uh, uh, that, uh, that is beyond my ability. Yeah. My, my best build drill ever. Now this was with a tuned an, an Ernest Langdon tuned Beretta elite LTT, which we all know and love. I did one just talking trash one day and I had not shot a build drill in years. And I stepped up and knocked one out in about 2.6 clean. And everybody was like, <gasps> and I was like, uh, was that fast? I guess I, uh, yeah, because I, um, I don't shoot USPSA anymore. So it, I yeah. had like no measure and I don't think I could have done it again without a lot of practice beforehand. Yeah. You know, um, I don't shoot, I, I don't shoot USPSA anymore, but I, you know, in my shooting growing up years, I did shoot, uh, USPSA. Yeah. And, um, so to me it's, it's, uh, it's a drill or it, it's, it's, I don't really use it as a draw. I use it as a um, kind of like a pace setter or to see how I'm doing. I use it as one of the many tests that I do on myself from time to time. So I don't, I don't practice it, but every once in a while I will touch base and do it like three or four times a year just to let me know. It lets me know because it's a good drill that, you know, shows you how good is your draw speed, how good is your uh, first time to first hit. It shows you whether your splits are consistent, and it's got a very reasonable, you know, accuracy zone in the in the A box. So I think it's a very good uh, test, and so I, I I do it several times a year, uh, but I don't, but I never practice it. So I just kind of use it to uh, take my pulse, so to speak. On an average day, on an average day, I'll do it in two three. Mm-hmm. And on my best day, you know, I might squeak in like a one nine five. Yeah, but but I, I can whenever I test it, I'm usually right around two two five to two three five. You know, in the one seven, I was very impressed. So, well, I got to hand it. Yeah, I got to hand it to Riley. You know, we we've talked over the last couple of years about different things, and that dude is taking spoonfuls of USPSA and just chewing it up. I love it, man. I love to see guys do that. I honestly cannot find the time. And uh, I don't know, like the motivation just isn't there where it used to be, you know? I, and I think yeah. there's the competitive aspect of me that really enjoys it and loves it. The flip side of it is if you want to get to the level that he's shooting at, that is a huge time commitment. And I, I, a lot of guys that start into that sport, I'm like, you got you to gotta manage your expectations because it's a long journey to get really good at it. And, uh, and so kudos to Riley. But the main thing that attracted me to his methodology there was he's running a dot. And I thought, yes, you sir. know, perfect guy to talk to civilian and the competition aspects of the dot because he's running it extremely efficiently and extremely effectively. So let's yeah. talk about it from the duty aspect. And before we dive off down the rabbit hole too far, uh, okay. I am, people have accused me over the years of being anti dot. So I'm going to clarify my position on red dot equipped handguns right now. And I'll sum it up like this. I think the state of police training until we have completely shaken the revolver PPC dynamic of teaching out of the semi-auto handgun that we've been issuing for 30 years plus most agencies 
until we get away from the marksmanship methods that were rooted in police pistol combat, the dot is not going to be used as effectively as it could be. And and I mean by shifting the style of training away from revolver doctrine with a semi-auto and putting semi-auto doctrine on a semi-auto. And I see that with a ton of agencies. They're still teaching the way that we taught PPC back 30 years ago. And if you compound that with a dot, it just turns into uh, the swirl headed for the drain. I think as instructors, we need to start being much more proactive outside of just what a post certification for firearms instructors is. And certain places have done a wonderful job of that. And certain areas of the country that I've been to, I still see the same rehashed stuff from 35 years ago, 30, 35 years ago. So when those people ask me about dots, I'm like, it's pointless. You need to figure out how to train like this. And once you do that, the dot will make sense. But until you do that, you're compounding a problem. So you're finding a solution to a problem you already have the solution for. So that's just my take. Um, So I'm not anti-red dot. Guys, I'm not. I just wow. Your your take on it was a lot more complicated than mine, but okay. Yeah, <laughs> and and being a military guy, dude, I am biased towards one particular red dot company. I won't mention their name, but they are tubular, and everybody in the army infantry has one, and they seem to hold up pretty well. And because when I was there, when we got them. And I said, you're going to give me and a bunch of 19 year olds that are full of testosterone batteries and glass. This is a recipe and it's not a recipe for making soup. Well, maybe soup sandwiches, but, but it turned out that they were durable enough to, to endure the rigors of, of, uh, a 19 year old that could break a rock. Well, um, my take is a little bit different than yours. I, I never thought of it in terms of what was holding, you know, training back as being, being, um, rooted in, in, in PPC training. Now that you mention it, that makes perfect sense. Because it actually makes sense. It gives sense to a lot of things that I've seen that didn't make sense to me as to why I saw certain agencies doing certain things. And as you know, with a lot of things in training, uh, as it as it uh, gets passed down, it's like the old telephone game. When it gets to the last, that last person, the message is lost. Right. And so oftentimes I see agencies doing things in their training that I think it has been passed down and it, it lost sight of the original goal. So to give you a real quick example, uh, one, of, one of my main training partners, until their uh, firearms instructor finally retired about four years ago, a regular part of their call was to shoot two to the body. Then you had to do a, a, a tactical reload, okay. with basically retaining the magazine with the rounds left in it, and then two headshots. And that was timed within a certain amount of time. Okay. Now, when you think about that for a minute, I'm not a huge fan of tack loading. I, I think you should teach it as a, a useful skill, but it shouldn't be something that you are meant to do under stress or time it. Because, right. because that speaks to the exact opposite of what it's for. Uh, you're supposed to do a tack load during the, uh, infamous lull in the action when you put somebody on a clock it's kind of like with the urgency of making another shot well then why would why would you not be 
just keep shooting <laughs> or doing a speed reload. But right. that's an example of having lost sight of the original goal. And so I do see a lot of that. As, as it relates to, to Dot, I think that I'm glad that we are creating a new generation of, um, of firearms instructors that um, the way we teach the presentation and the way we uh, teach them to come up on target and um, teaching them the elements of, 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 of target focus as opposed to front sight focus, you know, at certain distances. That, that's a whole other rabbit hole. So we might leave that for another day. Yeah. But um, what, once you learn that the way you aim with a pistol is ever changing. So, and that may sound like outright heresy, but at three yards, my aiming and the way that I teach it is my sight picture at three yards is essentially metal covered by meat to quote, I think Jim Cirillo. So if I can see the slide of my pistol and it is in the center of a whole bunch of targets, then, then the round is going. That's, that, that, that's not unaimed shooting. That is aimed shooting. It's just what I'm aiming with changes. Uh, as I get further back, um, maybe I'm at five, six yards. Do, do I need more than my front sight? And for me and for everyone that I've taught, you don't. When I get further back, then is the um, is the front sight anywhere at seven yards? Is the front sight within the notch? It might be high, might be a little low, might be left, a little right. But if it's in the notch and you send it, it's going very close to center, and it's much quicker. And then as you go back, and then you know when you're at twenty five yards, well then, uh, you know then we teach the classic uh, equal height, equal light. Uh, the front sight needs to be at the exact same height as the rear, uh, equal amounts of daylight on the front, uh, on either side of the front sight, and so on. So what is an acceptable sight picture, to me, changes with distance. And, and it's not based on a, a set distance, because everybody's different. The way I teach it is always, am I seeing what I need to see to make this hit? We that, go from there. Yeah, so that is something that I think when you're teaching a canned program, it is very difficult to have the time in place to one establish marksmanship fundamentals and fundamentals change at distance. I don't shoot the same way at three yards that I shoot at five yards that I shoot at seven, eight, Absolutely. 10, 25, 50 yards. I, I don't shoot Absolutely. the same way. I don't apply the fundamentals in the same method. So when you teach kind of a canned program, you have to yeah. you have to tailor it to let's I won't say lowest common denominator, but the most simplified version. And I think we've taken the most simplified version and complicated it to the point that everything becomes hard focus on the front sight. I have the conversation a lot with instructors that that I tell them hard focus on the front sight causes and induces more misses then it does accurate hits. The reason being is new shooters will, I've kind of quali quantified it as panic grip. They will see the sights exactly yep. where they want them and they will clamp down on the gun and the shot goes low left. So sure. my, my point being in that is when we now have this red or green ball that's bouncing around and it's never still, we can compound that if we continue to teach relaxed grip on the gun feet shoulder width apart 
you know, natural stance. I'm sorry. There's nothing natural about shooting a handgun. And these are all battles that I think need to be fought before the implementation comes in full circle. But I'm seeing a lot of agencies that have gone, okay, revolver theory was great for revolvers and we don't dismiss it, but we've shot semi-autos for 30 plus years. Let's teach people to run a semi-auto with a, with a reciprocating mass on top, not a rotating cylinder that causes all kinds of other anomalies to occur. To your point about the sight picture, right? Mm -hmm. It is really hard to get somebody that's brand new to understand, hey, you don't need everything to be perfect. You just need it to be what it needs to be. And you need, I say a lot, you need to see what you need to see to do what you need to do. But if you can't do what you need to do in the first place, then seeing what you think you need to see is pointless. So that's where when I when I've tried training people with a dot, the dots never still, and it is hard for them to to qualify. Hey, if the dots anywhere in that circle, pull the trigger. Um, yeah. Don't try to stop it. You know, focus on the target, yeah. not a sight. It adds a layer of difficulty. So. Continuing on with your uh, your expertise in that area. Well, I'll say this, Brian. You know, there's kind of two ways to look at it, right? And I'm not saying, you know, and if people haven't figured this out by now, uh, you and I, we don't spend a lot of time discussing this stuff in advance. And we end up learning from each other even as we're recording and doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. So none of this, none of this is scripted, which is why sometimes goes down rabbit holes. But you know, there's two ways to look at this. You're looking at it slightly from these are the problems that I see in the implementation of a red dot on a pistol in a department wide um, use a graduate school word paradigm, mm-hmm. as opposed to perhaps. Other people are just looking at it as, okay, red dots on pistols. What do you think? Because there's, they're kind of two different problems. Uh, one is how to run a gun problem. And one is, um, is the agency's uh, A, training cadre, B, experience-based, and, um, you know, C, amount of training they're willing to do, uh, will, will, will that mesh well with a red dot which is an important question but i think that's a slightly different question yeah and and one of the things that i that i struggle with a lot is people asking the wrong question and Mm -hmm. i'll give you an example of that hey should we implement red dots to make our qualifications and our proficiency go up And my question is qualification and proficiency have nothing to do with running a dot. My better, the better question I think is, are we training people in a method that will lend itself to using a dot effectively in a lot of agencies I've dealt with? The answer is patently no. So that that's kind of where I see that when we go like talking to Riley with civilians, it's like, dude, Go for it. Go, jump in both feet with a dot. 
I have to think about hundreds of people and batteries and glass and weather and all these other anomalies, to use a graduate word, all these other variables that are out there and mm-hmm. anomalies that are out there that it may be detrimental. So we have to we have to address it kind of in you know in reverse. So instead of hey this is this is a tool that I can implement that will help me and I'll train around it I'll train around it train around it me and that's the center piece of training to yeah kind of the reverse engineering of well now we've got to train for it. <laughs> Meaning, um, I, I I agree with you. It, it, on the one hand, there are you can look at it from the how do you implement it for a whole bunch of people uh, within within a you know law enforcement construct, and then the other way to look at it is you know working backward from the dot, which is okay. So, uh, what is your opinion of um, using a dot on a, a on a pistol for personal defense, and how do you go about um, getting proficient? And what are its advantages or disadvantages? Those are kind of two different things. Yeah, they're and, very different. And either, you know, they're both valid, but they're, but they're but they are two different questions. Um, and for me, I, I'm I'm lucky and in a unique position in that we have. I always lose count of the number, uh, but we get uh, cadets from approximately. I don't know. It's somewhere over 20. I don't know whether it's 23 or 26 agencies. And our in-service classes, they could be from anywhere. Uh, they could be from within that 23 to 26. They could be from the next county over, which would be Dallas County. They could be from, we get guys that come from, you know, 150 miles away to take classes from us. So with in-service, we get to see a much broader, wider subset of, of officers. And so I'm lucky that I, I get to see all of that. And within that, um, it, within the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, there are, to the best of my knowledge, two agencies that issue a, a red dot. Okay? Okay. And there are, again, to my knowledge, probably the ones that I know of, probably a dozen that uh, allow the red dot under, you know, certain criterion. Um, some, some make sense, some doesn't. Some of them are as simple as, well, look, if you come up, if you come to qualification with a red dot bolted on your gun and you pass, you're good. Um, and other agencies are much more thorough and will say something like, uh, we want you to take a red dot specific class. And most of them are somewhere in the middle. Of okay. I had the good fortune of, you know, having a, a father that was a firearms instructor in the eighties that was spending weeks and weeks and weeks at the range, teaching masses of police officers revolver to semi-auto sure. transition courses. And I can remember in that era, you know, it was like you needed to buy a thousand rounds of ammo on your own. And now yeah. this is 1980 seven dollars so a lot of money you know semi-auto handguns if you look at prices across the board have not increased substantially since 1987 
Uh, I mean, I can remember a SIG 226 back then being $600 in 1987, yeah. right? So yeah. it was a huge investment and it was three to, I think three days of training and, yeah. and a thousand rounds of ammo. And I see other things coming along like, uh, flashlights in the early two thousands, late nineties, early two thousands yeah. and, it, and it being a four hour discussion and then a qualification. And then, it, and I can go on example after example, after example of equipment that has come along. It takes a degree of training and I'm talking for age for agencies, for cops, right? It, it takes a yeah. much higher degree of training when we have, we've got a pandemic, we have restricted staffing levels. We have all these other logistical Absolutely. challenges. What the good thing about it is I've started to see that more officers are going outside of their agencies and taking bits of training from, from other reputable sources on their own when, you know, police department budgets are strapped right now because of the pandemic. So it, it's kind of yeah. inspired this new younger generation to kind of get out of the, the loophole of training for a test, taking a test and going back to work and actually putting a lot more emphasis on marksmanship training and things like that. And I'm not talking about training yeah. to take the state's test. I'm talking about sure, implementing sure. your handgun in a combative fashion. So I have some, some inherent like apprehension about certain things with the red dot. And so let's take a few minutes and talk about not like the logistical challenges and all that, because I'm sure the sure. audience would be extremely bored to hear about department budgets and things like that, which is above my pay grade. So I can't speak educated on it anyway, but let's talk about when you transition from shooting iron sights and let's say you're a proficient shooter, uh, you're maybe not Hanny McMood level, but you're close. Um, you know, you have a sound base of knowledge to harness and, you know, let's, let's say it's the guy that goes out and posts up 98, 99 on the, the, the sure. test every time, um, is, is proficient from the draw reloads, you know, I'm talking a well-rounded sure. shooter. What kind of challenges do you see for a well-rounded shooter that shot iron sights their entire life? And now we're going to bolt the micro red dot on the pistol. Okay. That's a, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because to me, the, 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 the challenge is in the middle is in the middle group because new shooters. So for instance, uh, the cadets that we get from agency, from the two agencies that we serve, uh, that issue red dot, you know, the vast majority of them don't have much handgun experience at all. Okay. Even, you know, especially as you know, separating from the military, uh, the ones that are, you know, recently separated from the military, uh, there's just not a lot of, of handgun that is taught until you get to, you know, certain units, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, because the military qualification, you know, that I've seen from, I've, I've seen air force guys call. I've seen army guys call. Uh, I, yeah, th- those are who I've seen. I've not seen, uh, um, you know, Marines or, or Navy, but between the, you know, the air force and army people that I've seen, uh, you know, that the, their qual is, is, 
I hate to say it, but it's it's just kind of like getting your ticket punched. Now, that may sound like a negative, but it kind of isn't if you're going to go to an agency that issues a red dot. Because the reality is they do not have a lot of time behind the site. And it is not that hard to teach them how to run a dot correctly. And then at the other end, the, 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 per, the people that you mentioned that are, look, these guys regularly shoot in the 90s. They're proficient with their handgun. They, they do not fumble. They can draw. They can hit. They can reload and so on. Also, for them, it's not that difficult. It's the ones in the middle, in my opinion, that are the challenge. So you so, uh, and I, I deal primarily with shooters that are in the middle. Uh, in my skill builder yeah. classes, these are people that they have a base level of proficiency and safety. They, they're, they have a grasp of, of understanding, you know, the relationship of sites and there's, there's a, there's a few components missing there in their performance. And like my skill builder class, I, I call it, you know, the elimination of skill set disparity. It's the ability to go. This is the one ingredient you're missing. Mm-hmm. And what I find is a lot of that, we'll call it that test group, that that middle of the road group between entry level and very proficient. Yeah. A lot of it is just unwinding fundamentals and showing them how to implement them. And, you know, dispelling a lot of the the bunk that's out there as to why they're not shooting to their their performance potential, mm-hmm. and that group, I've seen a lot of them show up with red dots, with the expectation that this was the missing link. And my answer to that generally is, I don't care what type of sight system you use. If you can't pull the trigger without moving the gun out of alignment, it's all moot anyway. But I can see why Um, you would say that group, that test group right there, that that they already kind of have their established norms can be Mm -hmm. very difficult to navigate. That would be the more challenging one. Yeah, that that is the most challenging one. Having having said all that, um, the... Here, here, here's where I come from on dot. I, I shot USPSA in the 90s. And, you know, you either shot, uh, I think back, obviously open has always been open. Open or and limited. Then, you know, when I first, yeah, when I first started, when I first started, I think it was still called stock rather than limited. And then, you know, it became limited. And um, so I shot people's, you know, open guns with a red dot. And back then they were, you know, they were Tascos. And then later they became Seymour's. And to this day, you know, Seymour's probably the, you know, the most popular one. But I, 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 I shot them and I was not, I didn't take to them. And I thought that to me, the bias was really against the guns. It wasn't really against the sight. There are open shooters and there are, and there are shooters who like to shoot guns that are closer to guns that people carry. And to me, that was always the bigger draw for me. So, so talk, the reality was, I re- go ahead. So talk to me about that middle group. And, and I'm talking somebody that I could come up, I could give them, uh, say, the test. And they would shoot right. 60 to 70%, you know? 
that okay. that group they have a base understanding they're not a hundred percent you know they're, they're they're not measuring performance they don't have those type of skill sets yeah but they have the knowledge to go out there and be able to be I would call it like semi-proficient, right? So what's the big challenge with getting them up to speed on a dot? Okay. It it basically comes down to two things. Uh, You know, if if I had to distill it as much as is possible, it'd come down to two things. One is the idea that you are looking through rather than at. So you are looking through to what you're looking at and the dot is there. Now, how do you achieve that? That's number two. The way you achieve that is you have to alter your presentation. In, in, in its most succinct way that I can think of, basically the pistol needs to come up more before it goes out more. Because in a, in a normal presentation, uh, mo- most of us, you know, after our hands meet, they may be about a foot away from our body and the pistol is still kind of below line of sight. And then as you extend further, it ends up at shoulder height. And it's a perfectly good way to run iron. With a dot, it has to come up more uh, before it goes out. And if you can do those two things, which is alter their presentation, that uh, whether you teach a three-step draw or a four-step draw, I'm sure there's a five-step draw too, but basically somewhere between when the pistol is drawn rotated and the hands come together and you go out towards the target. In that in-between area, the pistol needs to come closer to your line of sight. It doesn't have to be at eye line, but... Um, one of the simple tricks that, you know, we've gotten from, you know, the, the, the well-known instructors around the country is that basically, uh, and especially since, you know, most people are using a striker fired pistol instead of a hammer pistol now, uh, basically the, the back plate of your slide needs to come up like basically at the height of your upper lip and that it needs to come up that way as it's going forward before you finish going straight forward. And that, that if you can alter those two things, uh, they can, they, they can get on the dot very quickly. Now, um, that's distilled a little less distilled is you do drill where you allow them to see that the dot wobbling is a little bit of a um, optical illusion in that I explain to them, I always ask them, I go, do you, do you feel like the dot is moving a lot more than your iron sight? And invariably the answer is, oh yeah. Now let's think about that for a minute. Is the dot, can the dot possibly move more than your iron? Well, your eye can it perceive can. it that way. Yeah, sure. Your eye can perceive it that way, but it, it, the, you know, the move, your wobble zone, as we call it, is your wobble zone. It, it doesn't get bigger with the dot. So once they understand that the pistol is not actually wobbling more, it's just because they have a more precise um, thing to aim with. It appears to be moving more. 
much like when somebody is, uh, and if, if I'm lucky, they're rifle shooters. And if they're rifle shooters, I explain to them, I go, you know, if you have your, you know, your hunting scope at three power versus 12 power, do you notice that at 12 power, it seems to be wobbling all over the place? They go, yeah. I go, but is it moving more? No. It's just because you have more magnification. It's more precise. Your eye perceives every little tiny movement, whereas opposed to a three or four power, it doesn't perceive it. So once they get that in their head, that the reality is the dot is not moving any more than their iron. Is the dot within my acceptable wobble zone of the target that I'm trying to hit? Press through. And once they, you can explain that to them and then they do it, that, that is like a huge, huge barrier that overcomes a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and it takes that explanation to, to tell them. And, and we do a drill where basically um, I stand there and I, I aim in and I do a, I mean, a wobble that is worthy of a Parkinson's patient. And, and I have my teaching partner explain to them that that is how big my wobble is. And I ask them, does anyone have this big a wobble? And of course they all go, no. And they're right. And what we do is my partner, as soon as he touches my shoulder, I send it. As soon as he taps it, I send it. I don't stop the wobble. I stay within the wobble. And whenever he touches me, I send it. And we do that about four or five times. And they see that it's, it's like a five shot group. That's about three inches in diameter. Yeah. And I go, that doesn't seem possible, does it? But, but that's the way it is. That is how your eye is perceiving it. But really your wobble zone didn't get bigger. And between that demo and explaining it to them, their brain um, allows for the possibility that perhaps I can do this. So and that, that's a mental thing. Right. From the physical thing, it's that the pistol needs to come up higher before it goes out so that you're starting to look through the glass at a correct angle, even if you can't see the dot. And then as it further corrects, you see the dot. And by the time you're at extension, the dot is there waiting on you. Right. That, that, is, that is how it's done. Is it easier with some people? Yes. Is it harder with other, you know, with other people? Yes. Right. But that's basically the approach. And it, and it, I got to say, by and large, it works. Right. And my other, that, that all excellent information. And that, that's kind of the same things that I've discovered from training with them on my own. Now, the next the next thing I have with that is we're talking cops, right? For me, the, the bulk of the shootings I've seen, witnessed, been privy to, they all happen within the three to five yard zone. That, that seems to okay. be the norm. I, I do yeah. have one friend that was in a, uh, a confrontation that was over 50, I think the final shot was at 58 yards and he was Glock 21 versus oh, rifle wow. versus rifle and, uh, made a shot on bad guy as he was turning away. So targets in full view target turns to 50% right. and he makes the shot. Um, right. He's a very proficient shooter. He's a firearms instructor. And in that particular instance, you know, it, it was, 
it was a poop sandwich and it didn't matter which side he started eating first. He just had to start getting bit, yeah, getting yeah. work, right? Doing work. Right, so right. for me in my personal training sessions with a dot, and again, I'm not poo-pooing them, but what I saw when I was doing unbiased testing, meaning one day I'm running a dot, the next day I'm running irons and I'm going to put them through all my standardized drills cold. I didn't dry fire. I didn't do any of that. I just went out and boom, I'm going to shoot three drills, three drills cold. What I found was where I saw a huge benefit was at about 10 and a half to 11 yards. That was where the dot turned my performance up about five to 10%. Yeah. And the reality of when we see gunfights and, you know, we can all reference back to John Korea's library of videos. I don't see a whole lot of the application of them inside of three yards and the time factor, as far as like getting the gun out of the holster on target and making an accurate shot, the speed and time, there was no difference in speed, time and accuracy inside of like 10, 10, 11 yards. So for me, I look at that as a policeman and I go, is it worth me strapping glass batteries and an additional step in all of my maintenance and training and all that to be potentially more accurate beyond 10 yards? And that's kind of a question that I pose to some of my peers and I go, is it worth it for that? And the general answer is, Maybe. So maybe you can help me answer that one. Okay. That, that's, um, um, that, that's a good way to put it. So perhaps I can help you with the maybe. So here's the deal. The, the part where you said you noticed where the dot seems to pay for, you know, pay dividends is uh, past 10 yards. Right. And I'd say that's pretty accurate for yeah. me. Um, um, it's, it's, it's somewhere around the 12 to 14 yard mark that I find that I, you know, the dot now gives me something, uh, uh, precision and speed better than my iron. And to me, it's somewhere between 12 and 14 and everybody's going to be a little bit different. So, um, initially I had the same opinion as you, which is, that's not normally uh, a, a statistically high um, percentage of the shots that are taken in 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 confrontation. You know, be, be it be it law enforcement or not, and that 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 is was my initial impression, and it is still valid. However, the thing is that you can't look at it, Brian, like three yards and you're looking at full value target. Let's say, you know, most popular target that we use here is the TQ, TQ 19. And, you know, anybody can look it up. It's not a gigantic target. It's a pretty good target in terms of, you know, uh, shape and so on. Yeah. And balancing speed and accuracy. Yeah. And balancing speed and accuracy. So the thing is though, is that what statistics don't show us is that, a, a shooting may have occurred at three yards, four yards, five yards. But what the statistics don't tell us is uh, what was the target? 
because it is not always full value. Um, it, I'm it, using a different term than the one I normally use. Full, um, full value is a good way to describe it. Felon. It's not full value felon. And so the shot that may occur at six yards in terms of what is available for you to shoot may very well be the equivalent of a full value target at 17 yards. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and because the thing is, if the guy from your angle, what you see is, uh, two thirds of a head, uh, one arm, a shoulder and one lung, maybe the top half of it. And that is what is exposed to you. The, the stats will tell you a six-yard shot is a six-yard shot. But the skill needed to make that is, is not a full-value six-yard shot. It's more like a 16-yard full-value full right. uh, shot. Yeah. And, and so the precision that that dot gives you at closer distances is actually a lot more valid than statistics can tell us. Yeah, see. And that's what kind of changed my brain about it is that uh, even before I, I, um, I was teaching dots, you know, when I, when I taught, I would tell people that, look, um, the, the target can ever be changing. It, it, the target can go from more visible to less visible back to more visible. Yeah, the, the target uh, in a gun. Depending it, on the dynamic. Yeah, the target in a gunfight is the X factor. It, yeah. it, it, because it, let's face it in a qualification or as I like to refer to them, a certification yeah. that the target is the, is the, the variable that we have absolutely no control over. Right. We, we have control over our handgun, our fundamentals. We have control over what our perceptions and, and I mean, perceptions of what, what will it take for me to address this threat? Right. But the target right. is ever the X factor. And the reason I call it a certification is much like a driving test. If you take a driving tra- test Indeed. on a cro- on a closed track, there's not the chance that somebody texting on their phone is going to drift into your lane and you're going to have to react to it, right? Because yeah. that's the X factor. So we have a certification that says you're proficient enough to perform reasonably. Right. We have a standard that you're proficient yeah. enough to, to perform to, but we don't, have, we don't have a way to quantify all of the anomalies out there that can occur. So it's funny. You mentioned earlier, we don't pre-rehearse this. We, you and I really take kind of an off the cuff approach to the way that we discuss topics. And that's by design. I kind of do it that way. You know, when I call you and go, Hey, let's pitch this topic. And the reason is I really want to see where, you know, I'm trying to learn some, something from you. And, you know, earlier you mentioned, man, I never thought about that with the training yeah. and that comes out in this. Whereas if we canned it and pre, you know, rehearsed, here's how we're going to go down the subject matter. It kind of gets know, uh, sterile. So, well, Brian, we can't be wrong. It has made us millionaires. So <laughs> a multi hundred airs. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like when I was when it, back to music. When I was playing music, I was like, "Hey, man, you can be in a Stones cover cover band and make hundreds of dollars," you know. But yeah. uh, but either way, the uh, I've never looked at it from the perspective of precision at shorter distance because to me, I've always thought full value target, and that's not yeah. bad of me. That's just I've never. I've never quantified it like that because typically on shorter distances, I practiced on reduced silhouettes, two inch dots. Thank you, Ernest Langdon. Yeah. Two inch dots, four inch circles, one inch pasters, uh, three by five cards, stuff like that inside of uh, seven yards. But for a normal human shooter, and I don't mean to sound like I'm breaking my arm, patting myself on the back here that I'm the know all end all, but I've never looked at it from the precision aspect of, Hey, that target may not be full value at three to five to seven yards. So that's a really, man. And that's something that I do it more, believe it or not, in non-law enforcement classes than I do it in law enforcement classes. Because especially, you know, with, you know, in a law enforcement class, be it cadet level, in-service level, or instructor level, the, the material and the curriculum is different. Something that I stole, oh, probably, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago from Louis Arbuck was that he would, he would take his targets and he would hang them diagonally. He'd hang them sideways. He'd hang them straight up. And that was what first opened my eyes to it. It, it, it won't always look perfectly vertical and you're perfectly vertical and you're, and it's completely exposed. And so after that, what I used to do in my class is I, for lack of a better term, I used to call it tactical origami where <laughs> whatever the targets that I had, be they picture target or, or TQ-19s or whatever, you know, I'd set up six targets, and each one I would fold differently. So one, I would pick up the, uh, you know, the low right corner of the target, move it all the way up to about halfway, and fold it over. What you see is all of one shoulder, the top of the chest, and most of the head. And then I'd do the next one the opposite way. Then I would do one that I would uh, just fold it in half. Right. So you saw half of everything like straight down his nose and to the right. And each one presented a different problem. And then that way, in my mind, it was kind of getting the student to take in the idea that target doesn't necessarily stand to you, it stands at you, perfect vertical, a mumbling, vertical and, and full value. Very quickly, people realize that, oh, there's a lot more precision that can happen than I thought. And I want to go ahead and give you props because you just gave me subject matter for Skill Builder 3, which I'm in the process of writing. <laughs> well, so. brother, steal away. It's not like <laughs> I invented it. When you look at it, look at like we often think of, you know, hostage rescue shots are typified by movies as a dude with a rifle and, you know, you see crosshairs and, you know, he puts it right through, you know, his tear duct. But the reality is that happens a lot more often. And we've had two shootings nationwide within the last year that are on full video that were essentially hostage rescue shots. And one went horribly, horribly bad for the hostage. And the other one went very, very well. Uh, the, the hostage was actually, he wasn't technically a hostage, but he was an officer and he was fighting with, 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 the, uh, with the suspect. And the other officer ran up and got within a very close distance and, and hammered the bad guy in the right area. And literally, the bad guy and the officer's bodies are touching. 
Yeah. The officer's I, kind of sideways on the ground and the other guy's kind of sitting up. Right. And I, I've so, showed that video a number of times yeah. to talk about threat perception. Like just sure. because you think the fight's over, uh, the bad guy has a say in that. <laughs> so To bring it, a full circle back to the dot, the thing is, is that e- even for me, the way I first looked at it was like, look, this is not helping me one, one bit until I get to, let, let's call it 13 yards. Okay. But as I trained with it more, I realized that 13 yards is not necessarily 13 yards. Basically, the target needs whatever it needs. And it may be a 17-yard a sight picture that I need to make a hit at four yards based on what is exposed to me in the hit that I need to make. And in those areas, the dot really, really helps. Yeah, I, now, I've, I've never that, looked at it that way. And, and I think you have changed a large perception of some of my apprehension on, on the dot right now. So we're, we've run, uh, we've run well over an hour now. I think, I think this discussion warrants, you know, maybe another 10 minutes here and I'll, I'll do the fancy, uh, clip artwork here later, but let's talk about on the law enforcement side. One of my big apprehensions, I'll just, spell it like this is every single platform I've seen. I don't care what brand there's only one that I've seen that I'm like, I would get behind that. And I I don't want to brand promoter plug because sure, sure. you know, but uh, there's an instructor that you and I both know and love that I just bought a watch from, by the way, who's the retired Delta force operator. And he had a particular P320 with a setup on it that when I handled it and went through it. I was like this, I could, I could really get behind this because it's purpose built for this. And to me, all the solutions out there right now seem to either steer you towards one particular brand of red dot, or they are a compromise that requires so many, it, it requires like a master's degree in engineering to put it together. And that's been one of my big apprehensions, you know, well, I've got to send it to this guy to get this milling work done. And I've got to send it over here to get this plate. And if I need sites, I've got to call this company and order this height for this because we shoot this ammo and the rabbit hole, the whirly water keeps getting closer to the drain with me. So I've really been kind of on the fence about it until I saw the setup and I'll just go ahead and say it. It was Larry Vickers gun. He's a, I call him a friend. He's a friend of mine. His setup had standard height sites, lower third, an acro, which, okay, we, we're not getting into brand promoting or plugging and the pros and cons of that brand, but right. But it it, is what was on his pistol. It was on what was on his pistol. It, It was a setup from Wilson combat that had been purpose driven for that optic on that gun and I got to say, they hit it out of the park. And allegedly, that system is going to become available really soon through a major manufacturer. I thought, you know, there's something I can really get behind because I believe in yeah. a fully enclosed emitter. I believe in lower third co-witness and not suppressor height sights blocking the entire window. I believe in backup iron sights. That one to me was finally the one that really I said, okay, we've now we're there. Now all these other things that are out there in the industry need to catch up, except that whole platform has not been mass marketed and mass available yet. 
So I'm like, everybody else needs to catch up to this and do this and do it like this. That's been part of my apprehension. So for the other part of that is once you parlay into that game, okay, now what duty holster do I select? You you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's a never ending challenge to try to find the right compromise. And I'm kind of of the opinion, I want to buy it and it work. And it worked the way that I want it to without a whole lot of propeller heading, so to speak. You know, I don't want to have to spin my propeller and get out my slide rule to make sure that this is going to potentially save my life. Much like Ernest Langdon, when he did the the work on mounting a red dot to a a Beretta 92, which everyone said was impossible. When he did that, he he engineered out all the issues. You know what I'm saying? Like he, like they took it from the perspective of we're going, we're not going to compromise to make this work. We're going to adapt this to work with this platform, the way that they did the plates, the sites, everything. It's a one-stop shop. You get it, you mount it, you go, you go do work. That's been, especially in law enforcement, that's been one of my hangups with it is I haven't seen that come until recently. I haven't seen that be the the driving force behind it. It's always we're going to compromise our pistol in some way or our plate or our sights to do this instead of we're going to do this and not compromise any of this. We're we're going to make it a an asset and not more liability, so to speak. Talk to that point for just a few minutes like what Here's the thing about that is that you're 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 right, and I will I will say that what I've seen and tried to keep up with to you know remain a relevant and useful instructor it, within the last three years it has changed exponentially in terms of how usable or adaptable or available a red dot system is. And you I are somewhat some pistols are much more conducive to a red dot. The Beretta that Ernest set up, that took a lot of work. But, you know, he did the work. Now you just have to pay for it. But the system appears to be very valid, and it sits nice and low, and he had to re-engineer components inside the slide to to deal with it. But with most of the striker-fired pistols out on the market, at least, you know, three that I can think of, it's it's the, the the work has been done for us within the last three years as to how to make it reasonably easy to plug and play, if I can use that expression. Absolutely. Um, the I, dots are changing and the guns are changing. Make them easier for the package to come together. I've heard rumors in the industry of some other stuff that's coming down the pipe. And, and that was some of my apprehension even three, like you said, three years ago. And, and I can back mm-hmm. this all the way up to the very first slide mounted red dot that I saw personally and shot was in 2001. So this is not a new concept. I actually was at a IDPA match of all things and a a retired law enforcement officer had gotten permission from his agency to put a dot on because he had some macular degeneration. He couldn't see his sights anymore. And then that ultimately led to his retirement, but he had gotten a, letter allowing him to do that provided he had some additional training with it and he said that was the hardest part i mean you're talking 19 years ago he said the hardest part was 
the only guys I know that run these are shooting them on open guns and the, the, the optics not on the slide. So, but he went to gun site and a few other places and got some training and his agency said, yeah, you can do that. He had a doctor and he had to have a custom holster made. I mean, it was a massive investment. It's a lot easier now. It is. It really, really is. Every six months, in my opinion, it gets easier. Yeah. Uh, the availability of holsters, the different, um, the changes that the uh, weapon manufacturers are doing to make it easier to mount uh, a dot in a sturdy fashion, things like that. You raise a good point about uh, vision issues. One of the things that we didn't touch on was as we age, the sights get harder to see. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky. Uh, I'm, I'm 51 now and I still see my irons really, really well. Yeah. I'm, I just turned 41 and uh -huh. luckily I am still correctable to 2020. And yeah, luckily my eye doctor is a shooter. So when yeah. he sets my glasses up, I take my pistol in with me and we <laughs> shut the door and I clear my pistol and he goes, let me measure your focal point to the sights to see if maybe we need to make a yeah. minor adjustment in your prescription. So that's, <laughs> that's some propeller headed engineer stuff there. But at the same time, luckily we haven't had to do that. So I have peers that are my age or younger that the sights have started to fuzz out on them, you know, at an earlier age, um, you know, somewhere in their forties. And, um, and for them the the, the dot make is, is just easier to pick up. Uh, that's assuming they're holding it up correctly and they can see it. Yes. It is much easier to see than iron. So the challenge then is, is that is getting them to the technique to where they can see the dot quicker. Yeah. And, uh, it, it has been, um, it, it, I've seen noticeable improvements with, um, people who whose vision changes. I've literally seen officers from departments, people who aren't in law enforcement probably wouldn't believe that this happens, but I've witnessed it where on their call, the officer put one pair of glasses on for the 15 and 20 yard stage. And the seven to three, he switched glasses and the agency was good with that on a call. And I'm just standing there shaking my head. Like, really? He, he's switching glasses mid-call, you know, to have the optimal vision at that distance to see his sight. And you got you, you guys are good with this? Well, that, and uh, that's, idiocy occurs. That's why I, I call it certification and, and not yep. training. It, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's taking your driver's test on a closed track. All good information. Interestingly enough, the red I'll dot. What, uh, let, let me throw one last thing oh, okay. for Go you, ahead. Brian, and, and for anybody else. Um, when I decided I needed to learn the dot, I decided I needed to learn the dot because I'm an instructor by trade now. Um, that's my main uh, responsibility now. So I got one set up. I, I did it on a Glock 17, and I you know sent off a slide, had it machined properly, you know, I chose the, one of the more popular dots and I shot it and carried it exclusively for three months. Now I'm not saying that it takes, takes three months. I'm saying that's what I did for me to feel, um, at a level of competency that I can instruct it 
and really be familiar with it and really get used to the ins and outs of it and figure out what's the best way to teach each hurdle that I found. But that's what I did. And I, and I did that for three months and I didn't need three months. I probably think I could have done it in a few weeks to a month, but I went ahead and did it because that way I really wanted to learn it so that I could properly teach it and not just spout little bits that I saw off of YouTube robbed from good instructors like, uh, you know, Aaron Cowan or Scott Jedlinski or whatever, and just kind of take these little snippets from them. But to actually understand it as well as I could, that's what I did as an instructor. I kind of did the same thing. I, you know, at the time, my agency were still restricted on red dots. Uh, it, it's it's in the, the pipeline, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I invested in my own. I bought a 320 M17 and mounted mm-hmm. a Delta Point Pro on it. And I spent about three, about 90 days really engrossed in that. And I did some things with it that a lot of the people who were really proponents of it were not bringing into consideration. And what I mean by that is I started finding there are certain brands and certain things that, you know, when you throw out the 500 lumen gun light, all of a sudden the dot goes away. I I think some of them have made adjustments, primarily law enforcement. It's like 7-Eleven. We're always open, but we're not doing always doing business. But sometimes (laughs) when we do business, we have to go from a lighted environment into a pitch dark environment. And there are training considerations in there that a lot of the people that were pushing for, man, we just need to blanket red dots across the board. I'm like, well, have you considered that? Hey, some of these, if I have the intensity set for daylight, when I go inside and I flip on my gun light, the dot goes away. That's a problem. That's not good. Right? So let's look at how we can train to address these issues. Um, sometimes I get out of a car that's nice and toasty at 75 to 78 degrees and I step outside and there's sleet and there's snow and there's ice. And now I've got to draw my gun. That's been in a police car for four hours, three, four hours, Mm -hmm you know, taking phone reports or whatever in inclement weather. And now I get outside and now I've got a big wash of fog and I have a laser light show. So how do we train around that? How do we train around, man, I just fell and the glass is spider webbed in there because I <laughs> ask me how I know sometimes when you get out on ice and you don't realize it's ice, your feet cross yeah. the plane of your head as you're on the way to the ground. And I landed on my holster <laughs> one time. It was a beautiful fall, by the way. But, uh, uh, and, and it was in front of a number of people, but, but either way, I look at that and I go, okay, that's great. Some of the red dots, I look at them and I go, man, this makes a really good cup for French fry salt. And Hey, I don't know if you've ever knocked a hot cup of coffee over in your police car, Ask me how I know and dumped it right into a, a <laughs> right into a brand new SIG. And, you know, I'm saying like, there are a lot of things that, that on the civilian angle, they're non-issues, right? They're you know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose to carry this for as a concealed carrier, and a lot of yeah. those training considerations aren't there that you have in law enforcement. So that's been some of my apprehension, and I think the companies, finally, the industry is driving at those issues. If that makes sense, they're they're attacking those issues instead of leaving them rot with ambiguity. So. 
So anyway, all of that to say, I think we covered a lot of ground and we're probably going to have to readdress this topic because like you said, I, I feel like the red dot and pistol thing is really akin to the mid nineties PC <laughs> where yeah, as yeah. soon as it hit your doorstep, it was obsolete and you needed a new one. It's kind of, we're kind of in that race of it right now. And I'm really looking forward to shot show, whether it be vir- virtual or in person to see what the industry is driving at now and to see how they've addressed, you know, battery life, mounting issues, plates, sites, milling, purpose-driven yeah. slides, st- stuff like that. Because what the last shot show I went to in 20, uh, I think 2018, it really, they were, the, the industry was really driving towards red dots and I'm going to cue you in on something and I may edit this out later, but an, an engineer from a very, very prominent company in the gun world, I asked them, I said, why, why now, why are we pushing red dots? They all seem to be a compromise of some quirk. And he, his answer straight up to me was, well, the gun market right now is kind of slow. So how can I get you to buy your favorite pistol again? And I, well, that, that is certainly a consideration from an industry point of view. Right. And Absolutely. I took a step back and I went, so you're telling me that you're driving this purely from sales. And he said, yeah, wouldn't you? And, and I said, well, yeah, if I'm in the money-making business, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And he said, I can get you to buy your favorite pistol that you know and love, have all your accessories for, all your magazines, all your holsters, all this, and I can get you to buy one that's just like it. But now you can put a red dot on it. And I thought, huh, well, is there anything wrong with that in our capitalist society? Absolutely not. Why not? But it really, to me, put the cart before the horse. Um, And I understand, hey, these companies, they have to make an investment and they have to recoup that investment for R&D and machine time and all these things. So, yeah, was it a little backwards, but... At the same time, it has pressed the industry to where it's at now, to where we are getting more into the, as you said earlier, plug and play. So for all the cops out there that listen to this and all the civilians that have have endured an hour and 20 minutes now of us (laughs) discussing red dots, final thoughts, dot or not, I'll sum it up with one word, maybe. I should have thought about this more because the (laughs) idea of yes or no, um, I think the, I think the answer is that, um, for certain people, it is an absolute advantage. Uh, and I think that's actually for a goodly number of people. Um, some people, it, it will not add much to their, uh, skill or ability to hit until it gets, to a distance that is um, not very common in engagement. But by and large, I think the dots are a plus, and I think they will help more people shoot better. Yeah, there's where I can leave it. So, like I said, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a maybe, but mine's a much my, mine is a is is a is a more positive maybe. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, t- time will tell. But based on you know we started this conversation 
talking about, you know, watching that video of Riley and, um, uh, that, that there are, are people, you know, performing at a, at a higher, significantly higher level with the dot than they did with the iron. That's not an accident. That, that just means that they put in the time. So if you're willing to put in the time, shop correctly, uh, get good equipment and so on, it's worth it. Well, excellent, Hanny. I'm going to sign you off. Great final right, thoughts. Sir. Great conversation for Dot or Not. Please be sure to check out our sponsors, Mountain Man Medical today, and of course, EDC Belt Company. Go find them at concealedcarry.com. Find Mountain Man Medical's Mountain Man Medical kits at mountainmanmedical.com. If you have not already, please do us a favor. Listen to us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like to listen to it and we're available. Click subscribe and shoot us a review. We did a little mailbag earlier and got some really good comments. I'd like to hear more of that. We put this out so that you get the the, the cop perspective and the civilian perspective, and hopefully it's enlightening on both fronts. Thanks again to my guest, Hanny McMood from uh, the great state of Texas, full-time law enforcement instructor. And we will catch you next week for the topic, which is as yet undetermined. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.